Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. To go along with the new sermon series, uh, we have a new title. If you look on the front of your order of worship, you'll see that the, the title of this series is All Things Work Together for Good. That's one of those famous passages from Scripture that many people can quote. You have that in your mind, all things work together for good. It comes from Romans 8, towards the end of Romans 8, and that's the goal that we're working towards in this series, to get to that statement. It's not just a famous statement of Scripture, it's also a widely misunderstood statement of Scripture as well. It's one of those things that doesn't mean what you think it means. You only see what it truly means in the context of the chapters we'll be working through, 6, 7, and 8. There's a little Greek lesson for you also on the cover of your order of worship. Uh, the words in Greek read, Panta sunerge eis agathon, which is simply Greek for all things work together for good. That first word that starts with the pi, that's panta. It's if you've ever taken a class on worldview, you've probably been told uh, something about pantheism, the idea that God is in all things. That same root word there, panta in Greek, is just all things. All things. All things do what? They, they sunerge. Sunerge. They work together. That's actually a word, although when you look at it, you may not recognize it. That's a word that we use in English as well, synergy. Whenever you go to a business conference and people talk about the synergies, what they're talking about is just things that work together. Right? That's what that means, things working together. Now, in Romans 1 through 5, in talking about justification by grace through faith, what Paul has been talking about is how in our salvation, God works not synergistically, but monergistically. In other words, we're not working together with him in order to save us. God is doing all of the work of salvation. So when we talk about justification, we often use that term monergism, and we use it as a contrast to synergy. But here, Paul clearly talking about synergy. Synergy. Interestingly, though, not the kind of synergy we're often thinking of, which is man and God working together. This is a different working together. All things working together. A synergy, a working together between all events, all of the stuff that is happening is working together, ace agathon, for good. For good. It's a strange way of seeing the world. All of the circumstances, all of the things that are taking place are somehow in collaboration, and all of them have a goal, and that goal is good. Working towards goodness for us. What does that mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) We're going to work our way up to it over the course of six chapters, because the problem is when we ask ourselves, what do those words mean? We usually answer them in isolation minus that context. And we take it to mean something like uh, whatever bad happens in the world isn't really bad. It's actually good because all things are working together for good. All things are working together for my benefit, something like that. 
What Paul is talking about is something different. It's a different question that he's answering in Romans 8. And to understand it, we have to start here where we're beginning this morning in Romans chapter 6. We'll see over the course of the next few weeks and and months, as we work through chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, that what Paul is talking about is what happens after justification by faith. He's talked about salvation by faith. It's grace. It's not works. And then the question becomes, okay, well then what comes after that? Now that we've been justified, what next? Well, Paul says that now that we've been justified, we enjoy new life in Christ. And that new life is based on more than mere obedience. That new life is based on on faithfulness, which is a little bit different. In the simplest terms, the question really is, if we've worked through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we've gotten all of the doctrine, we understand the justification stuff, now we, we reach chapter 6, and the question in your mind is, okay, so what exactly? If it's all by faith and not by works, so what do I do? How am I meant to live? What does it look like now that I have been justified? How do we answer that question? What is the now what? And if the now what is just be obedient, now that you've been justified, be obedient. Now that you've been justified, start being a good person. Then aren't we in danger of preaching justification by faith, while we're smuggling in salvation by works through the back door. You were saved by faith, and now, get busy, it's time to be obedient and live a life of obedience. Isn't that just another way of saying it really is about works? So now what? Now what? If we're saved by faith, how are we supposed to live? Now, because we know, I hope we know, that salvation is by grace, that it is by faith and not by works, we want to be careful never to make it seem like we're only paying lip service to grace. And what we really mean is you need to be obedient, you need to be a good person, you need to be morally upstanding in order to please God, all of those kinds of things. We want to avoid those kinds of moralistic answers, right? The problem is when you're trying to avoid saying the wrong thing, you know what the easiest thing to do is? Not to say anything. Have you ever felt that way before? You're not sure what the right answer is? This happens to people when they study theology. You study theology, you start reading systematic theology, and and you quickly discover that everything you thought you knew, you don't really know. And all of the things that you were certain about, if people had asked you to explain the gospel, to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, things like that, you would have done it. You would have dived right in. But then you start reading theology and you realize, not only do I not understand, but probably everything I would say would be wrong, maybe even heretical. So maybe I shouldn't say anything. Not much of an answer. But we have to be able to answer the question, what next? What next? Some people, in order to guard against that moralism, to guard against... That idea of, of, of smuggling in works through the back door will answer that question and say, basically, now nothing. Now nothing. 
there is nothing to worry about. If you have been justified, you're good. And there's nothing. The gospel stops there. And any attempt to talk about obedience after grace is just going to be that smuggling works back in through the back door. There is nothing. Just repent of your sins, have faith in Jesus, and all is forgiven, and that's all you need to know. But here's a problem. If any time you say something like, stop sinning, don't sin, be obedient, if every time you say that, you're just reverting back to works, then aren't we saying that if you've been saved by grace, then you can just kind of live however you want to live? It doesn't matter what choices you make, that the Bible says nothing to guide you in life after justification. Isn't that essentially what we'd be saying? All is forgiving. There's no need for ongoing repentance. There's no need not to make the wrong decisions. In fact, if what Paul says in Romans 5 is true, if it really is true that where sin abounds, grace superabounds, that if you think about it, doesn't salvation by grace give us an interesting almost uh, license or even incentive to sin? If the more disobedient I am, the more grace superabounds, well, like, aren't we a church where we talk about longing for more grace? If we long for more grace, and the more sin there is, the more grace will abound. It almost seems like what Paul is saying is, hey, maybe just live how you want. Don't feel bad about it. Sin all you want, that's okay. Because Jesus died for it all. The worst you can be, that's okay. Because it'll all be forgiven. And that just magnifies the forgiveness, the grace of God. That may seem crazy. That may seem like a, a, an absurd conclusion to draw from the doctrine of grace. But it's exactly the conclusion that Paul is anticipating in our text this morning. And he understands that he's just saying that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. What that sounds like is license to sin. It sounds like you don't need to repent of your sins. It sounds like it's okay to do whatever comes naturally because Jesus will take care of it all. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I love the rhetorical questions that Paul asks as he goes. He's a good teacher. As he writes the epistle of Romans, as he lays out this doctrine for you, he pauses from time to time. And, and the way that he teaches is guided by the thought process, not only his thought process, but what he's thinking your thought process is as well. Like as you're thinking of objections to what you're hearing, he anticipates those and he addresses them. If salvation is by grace alone, then why shouldn't we just keep on sinning? That's the question. Should we sin so that grace may abound. And Paul answers and says, by no means. In the King James, it's translated, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's two observations that I think we should make here. It's worth noting. First of all, you should never worry that the way you're talking about the gospel 
makes it sound like you're soft on sin. You should never worry that the way that you talk about grace makes it all seem too easy. Like God might be forgiving too many people. That God may be, I don't know, forgiving people who don't even deserve it. We should never be concerned that we're exaggerating the grace of God. That we're making God seem too forgiving. That we're making God seem too loving. And that that's going to lead people to wrong conclusions. In fact, if the way that you talk about the gospel does not make moralists nervous, it's not the right gospel. Because when Paul talks about the gospel, people get nervous. When Paul talks about the gospel, people think, wait a second. What they told me in the synagogue was I needed to keep the law. And you're saying I don't need to keep the law. Like I don't need to be a good person. I don't need to be obedient because I'm saved by grace. So why would I even live a good life? What would be the incentive if it's all by grace? And to be honest with you, if we talk about grace in a way that doesn't trigger those same responses, uh, we need to work on the way we're talking about grace. Because we're not making it good enough. We're not, we're not making it uh, forgiving enough. Right? Grace should make you uncomfortable if you think the way to please God is by being a good and upright person, by being better than the people around you. Then when you hear the gospel that we preach, it should make you nervous. That's one thing. But here's the other thing. When we do raise those concerns, when the way that we talk about grace does lead people to think, oh, you must be soft on sin, then our answer, like Paul's, should always be, by no means. By no means. There are people who talk about grace in a way that makes you think, so sin's not a thing, really? Sin doesn't matter? That's not something I need to worry about. And when that conclusion is voiced, they answer and say, essentially, correct. It's not something you need to worry about. Jesus paid for it all. Move on with your life. Don't worry. It's all good. That's Jesus' problem, not yours. What I'm saying is, number one, talk about grace in such a way that it makes moralists nervous, being too forgiving. But when they say, so wait a second, we should sin so that grace may abound, our answer always has to be Paul's answers. By no means. God forbid. He's not just saying no. He's not just saying no. He's repudiating the idea. Like He's saying that that, that idea that sin is somehow okay because it leads to more grace is not only not correct, but it is so contrary to the gospel of grace that it's inconceivable that you would come to this conclusion. These two things are diametrically opposed to one another. It simply cannot be the case that the gospel of grace is a license to sin. Why not? He explains, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? The question really has to do with, with how do we live, whether or not we can live in sin. Can we live in sin? Paul says living in sin is diametrically opposed to justification by grace through faith. The question is why? 
Why? Because obviously, if you're reading the book of Romans or you're hearing this explained, I mean, it, it feels like a logical conclusion. It feels like there's a, a de-emphasis. If it's not by works, aren't you de-emphasizing the importance of obedience? That seems to make sense. But, but Paul, he says, no, it's completely contrary. And it has to do with this idea of life and death. Death and life. Of being dead to sin and alive in Christ. Remember when he talked about Adam and Christ, he was talking about being dead in sin and then being alive in Christ. Right? Being dead in Adam, united with Adam in his sin, now being made alive in Christ. He's taking that idea, death and life, and he's saying because of that, there's a mighty gulf right, between who you were and who you are that makes it impossible to live the way that you did. It makes it inconceivable. In other words, when the Spirit of Christ quickens you, regenerates you, makes you alive, then you have died to sin. You have died to sin and now been raised to a new life in Christ. Now, to illustrate what he means by this, he points to a sign. He gives you a picture, an illustration. And the sign that he points to is baptism. He points to one of the two sacraments that Christ instituted in the church, the sign of baptism, which is a covenant sign. The sign of baptism is administered to believers and their children, all those who are in the covenant of grace, who have this promise of salvation that's been spoken over their community, and the sign testifies to the calling. It testifies to the calling. Sometimes... Uh, Old Presbyterian ministers, if they were speaking to um, apostates, so they're speaking to people who maybe grew up in the church, who were baptized in the church, but who never professed their faith in Christ or professed it and renounced it. One of the ways that they would call these people to repentance, and one of the ways they would call other people to Faithfulness is by saying, remember your baptism. Look to your baptism. They would point you to the sign because what the sign pictured, what it signified, taught a lesson. That's what Paul is doing here. He's pointing us to baptism. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, Paul is doing something here that Peter also does in his epistles. He's pointing to the sign and referring to all that it signifies. So he's referring to baptism, but he's referring to more than just the act of baptism. He's referring to what is contained, what is pictured, what is testified to in the act of baptism. Baptism, the sign administered by water, obviously certain connotations come to mind. The washing of the body connotes the washing away of sin, purification, There are other 
connotations. Uh, new birth, for example, is one. It's interesting, we don't often go down these sort of uh, sectarian rabbit trails, uh, try to keep the main thing the main thing, but people will often argue over mode of baptism, familiar with the arguments, what sorts of baptisms or valid baptisms. Depending on how you grew up, you may have different ideas about this. Now, I grew up as a Baptist, and so for us, the only right way to administer baptism was to immerse people fully, as deep as you could get them, down into the water. Uh, obviously, as Presbyterians, we don't do it that way. We don't say it's illegitimate to do it that way. We just acknowledge that there, there are other ways to do it. The Bible's not uh, that specific. It doesn't say you must do it only this way. Uh, there's more leeway. So uh, pouring and sprinkling are also acknowledged as legitimate ways. Obviously, we don't immerse many people in the baptismal font here. But I remember as a, as a child, one of those indelible lessons that I grew up with, when I saw in my Baptist church people being baptized, the pastor would do this little thing that was based on this verse. He would actually, like with his hands, act it out before he would baptize someone. You know, And he would sort of, like the motion, this is you, you're about to be baptized. You were buried with him in his death. Now you're going underneath the waters and he would like to hold people for an uncomfortably long time down there so that the death message really came across and then raised with him in his resurrection. And by the time you were raised, you felt like you had come back from the grave and you're like, ah, I can breathe again, that sort of thing. It was a powerful image. And, and every time I would come across this passage, it would make me think of, of that picture of, of burial. Um, so as you read it, you, if you had a similar experience, might have that same idea. So, so there is a historical problem with making that immediate connection and thinking Paul has in mind uh, that, uh, which is that they didn't bury people the way we bury them. You might be aware of the fact that when Jesus was buried in his tomb, that tomb remained accessible to people who did not have to dig underground to reach him. Right? It was an above-ground tomb, like a, we would have like a mausoleum, you know, one of those, those marble-looking buildings uh, in the cemetery that you would go into. Uh, not underground, in other words, not six feet under, but in a cave that was carved out. So in that sense, you lose buried with him and raised. It's got to be more like, you know, buried with him and then raised on that same plane. It's not as powerful as, as a, uh, an image but what is the connection? If, if you're looking for kind of that physical connection, think about Jesus in his death before his burial is prepared. His body is washed. It is anointed. Remember the objection that is raised to the, the, the precious ointment that is wasted on our Lord. Like these are burial ointments that are poured over him in preparation for death. So when you think about that idea of the application of, of the washing water, the application of the anointing oil, the preparation of the body for the grave, then you get a sense of where not only the, the, the things pictured, but the picture itself speaks to us and says, like you have died with Christ. Just as He died you have died with Him. And just as He was raised, you have been raised with Him. Your baptism calls you 
to new life in Christ. It's interesting too, when you look at that last sentence, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You can see there that Paul is talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus in a really complicated way. We've alluded already many times to the difference between the already and the not yet. Like the present and the eschatological. Right? The, the time we live in now and the, the age to come when Christ returns. And when you think about the death and burial and, and resurrection of Christ and how that relates to us, usually we think eschatologically. Right? And that's actually the great Christian hope, bodily resurrection. The gospel promises, yes, you will die. But if you die in Christ, then you will be raised again, body and soul reunited physically when Christ comes again. Physically. That has not yet taken place. But here, he's not talking about not yet. He's talking about already. So the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are testifying not just to a future reality, but also to a present reality. Yes, you will be raised physically when Christ returns, but you have already been raised spiritually to walk in newness of life. That is something Christ has already done in you. This is what theologians call the state of grace. We were in the state of sin. And now, by the power of the Spirit, we are in the state of grace. We did a little Greek lesson earlier, so it's time for your Latin lesson now. St. Augustine, in describing the state of grace, there's a little term, it just trips off the tongue. Passe non pacare. For you, it is now passe non pacare. If you are in Christ, it is now passe non pacare. It is now possible not to sin. You are able not to sin. Before, in the state of sin, it was non passe non pacare. It was not possible. You were not able not to sin. But a change has taken place. There is a newness of life, and in this new life, indwelled by the Spirit of God, you are enabled to be free of sin. You don't have to sin, in other words. You don't have to come to church every Sunday to confess your sins and say, the devil made me do it. I had no choice in the matter. You did. You did. You're in Christ. You're in a state of grace. A new life is yours. It is possible now for you to live a life of faithfulness. In the new life, you are enabled by the Spirit not to sin. Which is why some people, when they talk about sanctification, will talk about it as the new obedience. Have you heard that term, the new obedience? It was impossible to be obedient before, but now, by grace, it is possible to be obedient. And the Christian life is a life of new obedience. Which is good as far as it goes but it doesn't really go far enough. It doesn't really capture the, the, the motivation of our new life in Christ because it's more than mere obedience. This new life in Christ is more than mere obedience. And to understand what I mean by that, we need help from Dante Alighieri. 
You maybe are familiar with Dante's most famous work, The Divine Comedy. He's the Italian poet in the Middle Ages who wrote that poem about how he personally took a sort of walking tour of hell and then purgatory and then heaven. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. And he had various guides along the way. Virgil, the poet, was his guide through the Inferno. Virgil was the nicest of the damned. He was one of those pagans who was so awesome that God kind of put him at the top rung of all those who did not believe because Dante liked him the best. And if you're writing the poem, you get to decide who's ranked what way in the afterlife. But before Dante wrote that hugely influential and not exactly accurate poem, about the afterlife, he fell in love. He was introduced one day early in his life to the love of his life. Her name was Beatrice, or as he would have said, Beatrice. And when he saw her, it was like lightning struck him. Everything changed when he beheld Beatrice, her beauty, her unparalleled perfections, he suddenly saw in the flesh an ideal he could only have imagined before that moment. And it changed everything. He felt so deeply in love. He fell so hard that for the rest of his life, she was the subject of his writing. I said Virgil was his guide through the underworld, but his guide into paradise was Beatrice, who took him by the hand because she surely, with her perfections, could only have ended up in paradise. Years later, he wrote about the moment when he first saw her, and he said, I felt my heart awaken. I felt my heart awaken. We can recognize this idea of love at first sight, but but at the time that he was writing, that wasn't so much a thing. People didn't think that way. His experience and the way that he wrote about it became a kind of model for thinking about what it means to fall in love. And it changed everything. He wrote about her. He adored her. He lived for her. By the way, the, the time they first met, the very time he laid eyes on her, they were both nine years old. Nine years old when he met the love of his life. So kids, <laughs> keep your eyes open. Before he wrote The Divine Comedy, he wrote another little book, a sonnet sequence describing uh, meeting Beatrice and, and all that it meant to him, uh, how wonderful it was. He called it La Vida Nuova, which means in Italian, the new life. The new life. Because that transformation, that moment, that falling in love, ever after, he could date like the division in his life based on before and after that moment. The moment he saw her and every moment after, that was a new life for him. Just nine years old. For nine years, he had this old life that he couldn't relate to. And then forever after, he was changed. I don't know when you came to faith, but I was eight. I can relate. It's not an accident that he chose the words that he chose. He's not just writing about love at first sight. He's writing about, in a deeper sense, a deeper new life. The new life that we've been talking about. The new life that changes everything. Let me ask you this. If you thought about Dante 
and the life he lived after he saw the love of his life and how it changed everything, would it be fair and accurate to describe that new life as the new obedience? From the moment that he met her and every day after, he wanted to please her. He wanted to exalt her glory. He wrote beautiful poems about her. Was that a new obedience? I mean, in some sense, he would have done her bidding, whatever it is she wanted. But you ask me, is it an accurate description of the new life after love? I'm going to borrow from the Apostle Paul and say, by no means. By no means. No one would look at the life that he or any of us live after discovering love and say, ah, that's a new obedience. We have a different word for that. We don't call it obedience. We call it faithfulness. Faithfulness. And let me ask you another question. If after that moment you'd been watching and you saw Dante and he sees the love of his life and he comes to you afterwards and says, I've just met this girl, Beatrice. She's beautiful. She's about nine. How should I live now that this has happened? Could you imagine saying, well, Dante, it doesn't matter how you live. It's not about works. It's just about love. Of course you wouldn't say that. It would be nonsensical to say that. You would talk to him about faithfulness. How should I live? You should live for her. You should live for the one you love. That's how we live the new life. Does it not matter? Is it a matter of indifference? Again, by no means. It matters deeply how we live. It's just more than obedience. To think of it as, as, as mere obedience reduces something that a word like faithfulness helps to capture. If you want to know how do I live my new life in Christ, you have to ask yourself, well, how do I live when I'm in love? How do my choices change when I find love? Faithfulness is what we expect to follow, awakenings of the heart. Right? If it's true for Dante, it's true for us. Your new life is a life of faithfulness to Christ. It is born out of the love that He awakens within us when He awakens our hearts. That's the call that our baptism testifies to. To love Him as He first loved us. That's what it points us to. If you are with Jesus, then you've died to sin. It has no grip over you. That's the old life. Now, now, you are free to live for Christ. You've received a new life, and the way that you live it is more than obedience. It's faithfulness. Now that faithfulness, like all faithfulness, will not be perfect. You will always struggle, even in the new life, with that faithfulness. In chapter 7, Paul will be very honest about the struggle to be faithful and and the constant unfaithfulness that he finds in himself that we too would find if we examine ourselves. On our best day, our faithfulness to Christ is, is still a very imperfect thing. And it will be until the day when we see Him face to face. And then 
that faithfulness will be perfected. But even now, He is in you. And you are in Him. And you have died to sin so that you might live for Christ. You are called to faithfulness. Your baptism calls you to it. The table calls you to it. The Gospel calls you to it. It calls you to more than that. It calls you to the One who loves you. Who sacrificed Himself for you. The One who gave you this gift of new life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.